everybody, and welcome to the Let's Talk About It podcast show. In this episode, we sit down with Tom Wing, who is an assistant professor of history at the University of Arkansas Fort Smith and director of the Drennan Scott Historic Site located in Van Buren, Arkansas. If this is your first time hearing our podcast, I want to thank you for joining us today and hope you come back for more episodes. This podcast is sponsored by the Fort Smith Museum of History, located at 320 Rogers Avenue in Fort Smith, Arkansas. They are open Tuesday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., or you can visit them online at www.fortsmithmuseum.org. Now, on to the show. Well, when I first started this podcast, I... I sat down and I thought about who I wanted to talk to in Fort Smith and the surrounding areas about everything. You know, Cody Faber was one of them, Kevin Jones, but your name was at the top of my list to talk about the Drennan Scott House in Van Buren. So I am so glad you're here today. Um, we, we're history nerds at heart. So at what point in your life did you get bit by the history bug? <laughs> That's a... That's an interesting story, I guess. Um, at a very early age, I would say that uh, history became something I was um, deeply interested in and connected to. Um, probably, I, I have a book, I have a Civil War book that uh, my aunt gave me when I was in about the third grade, and it's Battle, Battlefields of the Civil War. And um, uh, that, that started a spark in me. Um, I have a good friend, my, one of my longest uh, running friends uh, going back to first grade a uh, man by the name of Eric Udodge Udodge name's pretty pretty, pretty d- yeah. Smith. <laughs> and uh, uh, Eric and I built models and and uh, painted uh, army army soldiers and military miniatures and and played war games and uh, he went off to a career in the military and I I ended up in history so uh, the other thing I, w- I want to say too is my mother and father um, always encouraged my interest in history. And um, when it came time to go to college, I majored in uh, archaeology, anthropology, and double majored in history and, and the social sciences to teach. And I came out, you know, and, and was a history teacher for about 10 years. And then that branched over into the National Park Service and a stint with them for almost 10 years. And then, and then that led to my master's degree in history and a position uh, teaching on the college level. And uh, so since 2000, I've been teaching on the college level. In 2004, I joined uh, the faculty at UA Fort Smith uh, in the history department. So that's kind of my story so, and how so, it all came together. So you went from park ranger to teacher to... Well, I was a teacher to park ranger and then to professor, I guess. Professor. Would be the, would be the track on that. And, so, uh, so out of all of your students, which ones showed the most interest oh in the God. history aspect of it. Was it the college students? Was it the ones in your your schools before college? Or was it the ones in college? You know, I, I think that uh, I, I can honestly say that probably I've seen equal uh, interest among all my students. Um, the challenge with teaching junior high or high school level students is getting them motivated to learn. Not, not necessarily the learning. Once you get them motivated, that's that's the key. Yeah. And uh, and that's really what wears you out as a teacher at, at, <laughs> at that at that level. Uh, college students are a little more uh, motivated because they've paid tuition. 
they're working on a degree. They they've got an end end game in sight, and uh, and that kind of changes changes the uh, the context of things. But uh, but I would say I've had I've had some very dedicated, very interested, very motivated students at all the levels I've taught at. What's funny is I mean you 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 talk about. Uh, people like uh, Kevin Jones, he was one of my students, and uh, people like Cody Faber, well, he yeah. was one of my students too. Yeah. So you know, it, it's been fun to see former students go on and and know that you had a little bit of a a, a, a little bit of a contribution, and you know, maybe sparking them towards towards some of their interests and, and work that they've done. Yeah, I mean, you know, I have people in the in the historic reenactment community that. If somebody has a question I can't answer, I know, okay, if I want to talk cavalry stuff or medical Civil War era, I always refer to Doug Kitt. Right. Uh, Cody, Marsters Museum, Historic Site in Fort Smith. Um, yourself, any artillery questions? Because how many artillery programs have you Oh, had? my goodness. I, I would have trouble you know, quantifying <laughs> how many times I've seen a cannon go off. But yeah. but it's always new and exciting, too. It's yeah. just something that never gets old. So you have a handful of people that I refer to, hey, I don't know the answer. Here's a gentleman that would know it. And you'd have, like, your top ten of people that you talk to or you refer people to. Right. And, and luckily we're able to have you into the podcast today. But what we want to talk about today is the historic side over at Van Buren. Mm-hmm. So um, I'll let you take the floor and <laughs> you explain it to our audience. Well, today. we have a we have a little house, uh, a little house, a little house that's fifty seven hundred square feet called uh, we call it the Dren Scott Estate or the Dren Scott Home. Um, my first, uh, well, I had heard about Dren Scott forever. You know, growing up in Fort Smith, being interested in history, eventually moving and, and living in Crawford County since nineteen eighty seven. Uh, I've lived actually more of my life on that side of the river now than I lived uh, <laughs> over here in Fort Smith. But but I'm a I'm a Kimmins Raider, Northside yeah. Grizzly, you know West Ark College product too. So I haven't forgotten where I came from. But uh, but anyway, um, Dren Scott was always a place I'd heard about. But the family had kept a really tight tight uh, rein on it on the property, and uh, always wanted to go see it. Always heard stories. Um, in 2004. I was working as an uh, interpretive park ranger and historian at the National Historic Site in Fort Smith. Uh, had, had a dream job. Ask Cody about it. Just a dream he's, job. He's doing that job today. <laughs> and uh, I, I got a phone call that uh, the, the dean of uh, arts and sciences at, at, at the new UAFS, which was formerly West Ark, uh, they wanted me to join the faculty full time. I said, you know, wait. You, you, you got to realize, I, I, I got a dream job here. I work for the federal yeah, government. I work for the I, government. I work for the Department of Interior. Yeah. Know, National Park Service. I said, people don't walk away from that. And uh, like make a long story short, uh, it was a great opportunity. I talked to my father. I talked to my my uh, superintendent, Bill Black, who, who did a lot of good things for Fort Smith in his time here. And uh, they both, you know, gave me some good guidance. So I took took it. And, and at the same time, I took the job to leave – and go to the university, um, uh, Dren Scott pretty much fell out of the sky. The woman that, that lived in the house had passed away. She had three children who were all middle-aged. Two, I think two of them were retired or approaching retirement at the time, and the other one was not far behind. None of them really, they all ended up with the property three, three ways inheritance. Yeah. None of them wanted it. 
uh, for their own, so nobody wanted to buy the other two out. Uh, they, none of them were in a position with, with their own children or, or anybody to pass it on to in the next generation anyway, so that it had run its course. And um, the city of Van Buren, through the AMP Commission, had, uh, had negotiated with the family, talked to Arkansas State Parks, had to talk to Arkansas Department of Heritage about it because it's a rich, and we're going to talk about it here in a little bit, we're getting some of the details, but it's a rich place in terms of heritage and history. Uh, state Park wasn't interested in adding a new state park in Van Buren, uh, to make a long story short. Department of Heritage was very interested in the collection, the antiques, the papers, the photographs, the stories that were contained in the property, but they weren't interested in the property itself. They really didn't have the means to you know, fund a museum in Van Buren that way. Well, and it's, yeah, I want to say it's out of the way. Unless you know exactly where you're going, right. it takes a little bit to find it. Yeah. The day we shot the cannons up there, mm-hmm. when um, you had a group up from university, mm-hmm. uh, Arthur from over in Oklahoma brought his cannon up. Right. So we had two cannons up there. Yeah. And it took a little bit to find, and it, I don't want to say it was out of the way, but you had to know what you was looking for unless you Google mapped it to yeah. actually find it. That's probably protected the site over the years as much as anything because it is kind of obscure and, and people don't expect people come up the driveway and go wow I didn't know this was here yeah. you know it's been it's been kind of secluded but the view is amazing if you get up there and look I mean you're overlooking the river and, and it's such a beautiful view and, and you can ask for a better place to no, put a house and picked a good spot that's yeah. for sure so uh, so they negotiated and tried to get tried to get the state to you know do something with the property Department of Heritage was just interested in the collection and the family really didn't want to let the antiques go and separate the house from from the contents because yeah. they it, it goes together and it was a unique situation. That's where UA Fort Smith came in. Uh, I got a call. Um, actually, I got a uh, I got contacted by Meryl Keith, the uh, uh, AMP director in Van Buren, and she said I'd like for you to come to a meeting and and consider historic property uh, in Van Buren. Um, we had just started a historical interpretation program, so we were training future park rangers, museum personnel, people that wanted to work in the history field but not necessarily teach it. Because we had a teacher licensure program and you could go you could go that route too if you wanted to. But uh, but but working with the public, working with school groups, uh, working with bus tours and, and that's a different kind of thing situation in a museum environment. So anyway, um, I went to the meeting and uh, Joel Stubblefield was the uh, chancellor at that time and uh, I had been I've been working for two weeks. <laughs> and, I, and I made an appointment with the chancellor and I said, I need to talk to you about a possible project over here uh, that, that could involve millions of dollars in, in grant money if we can if you write can a good it. application. And uh, he said, well, sit down. And so I presented a multi-million dollar uh, project <laughs> to the chancellor. He probably could have gotten fired on the spot and, uh, you know, not knowing, you know, any more than I did at the time. But Joel Stubblefield was a man of vision. I mean, he was, he, he was, he, first of all, he loved history. That's what I figured out really quickly. The second thing was he lived a lot of history. He was a um, he was an officer, a colonel during the Vietnam War. He he lived some very important, significant history in in the scheme of the American story. And uh, uh, I, I he would want to talk about the 19th century, and I'd be I would ask him questions about Vietnam. You know, tell yeah. me what tell me how this happened, and tell me what this what this was about. Um, but anyway. Make a long story short, uh, he he approved us to go through the project and and to um, to pursue it if we could get grant money. He he told me he couldn't he couldn't dedicate any budget money from the university over there because uh, for obvious reasons. 
So we went after grants, and our, our first grant was $850,000, and that was enough to purchase the property. We got that, and we got the property purchased, and then we did some um, some emergency work. We had some leaks and stuff that needed to be dressed immediately. Went back the next year and got a million dollars. Went back the year after that and got a million five, and went back the next year and got a, got 1.9, almost $2 million. And, and that, it, that was enough to complete the project. And it's all in grant money. All in grants. No no tuition dollars, no tax dollars, you know, revenue, other other streams. It was it was grant money that was dedicated to the preservation and uh, interpretation of important natural and cultural resources in Arkansas. Arkansas Natural and Cultural Resources Council, which is a, a grant organization in, in the state of Arkansas, is uh, we were a poster child project for them. Yeah. And, uh, and they funded the project completely. So um, we, we tore that house apart and fixed everything, termite damage and, and uh, bare wires in the walls for the electrical system that dated to the 19, early 1900s. I was going to say, it probably had the old plumbing in it. The old, well, I, the plumbing was probably plumbing, outhouse. So plumbing was did, crazy, yes. yes. Uh, all that stuff. We, we did analysis. We, we took the chimneys down brick by brick and put them back up. We, uh, we, we did paint analysis on the original colors of the interior and exterior of the property. We, we rebuilt a Victorian garden that, that was long gone and had, had been totally demolished uh, based on photographs. Yeah. We built a visitor center uh, to, to facilitate visitors coming in and, and handling bus groups and, and uh, school children and things like that. And uh, in 2010, uh, we got it completed. And in 2011, we cut the ribbon and opened to the public. So we've been, we've been open since 2011 as a museum and historic site. So it'll be 11 years this year? Yeah. The the other, the neat the other thing is we have a two and this goes back to Chancellor Stubblefield, who passed away by the way before the project was completed. One of my one of my great regrets is that he didn't get, get to, to see, see it finished. Yeah, yeah, and I didn't get to walk him through it and go look what look what you allowed us to do because yeah. uh, we we owe him that. But anyway, um, since 20, 2011, we've tried to um, follow two two mission directions, two 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 main goals, and that's one to be to be an educational facility for UAFS, for our students, a, a resource, a place for them to learn how to interact with the public and maybe get some hands-on experience in a career path in, in, in the museum field or historic site field or the National Park Service. I've got students that used to work, that worked in the state parks, that work in the National Park Service, that work for other government agencies and, and you know, uh, here at the museum, you know, Caroline is a former student. Uh, before her, Lisa was a former student. So, <laughs> so I don't know if it, it kind of makes you. I don't know if it makes you feel old, but but proud at the same time because you've taught these students and now you see what they're doing for the history in the community itself. There's, no, there's nothing better, nothing better than seeing your students succeed and and yeah. uh, and make it out there and 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 see them put put things to 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 work, put put things in in order that you taught them or that you, you exposed them to in the classroom. And that's just, that's awesome. It yeah. It doesn't get much better than that. And, you know, when we went over there to shoot the cannons, it, we took a quick tour of it and it was amazing because so much of the house was still intact the way it was. But then also, if I'm not mistaken, you had a classroom built into it as well right. or a large conference room. Right. And, and it overlooked, I want to say the garden or back to the north yeah, in the yeah. big area. Yeah. And it was just so beautiful. And yeah, that was beautiful. a sleeping porch. That's <laughs> yeah. where the family used to sleep in the summertime. And then the, over the years, the family had turned that into a den 
kind of a living area and put glass windows and walled it in. But we 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 cleared all that out and turned it into a classroom. But, so 2011, we opened the doors. We opened yeah. the doors. Um, do we have any kind of numbers of how many people have actually came through? It's it's thousands. I I, I didn't come with a uh, a notepad here and, and quantifiable numbers, but we were running. Uh, seven, seven to nine thousand people a year through there, and that's only being open three days a week during the yeah. tourist season, just from from March to November, because we close during the winter when things calm down. We we we've kept a schedule pretty close to the um, to the excursion train schedule in Van Buren. When, okay. they, when they're bringing uh, visitors into town, uh, we've targeted those months. We've we've run we we ran vans. Uh, from downtown Van Buren, shuttle vans to bring people to the house. Yeah, uh, Van Buren uh, since that time got a trolley bus, and that trolley bus has had service back and forth to the Drennan House for the people off the train. And then we draw some people off the interstate too. Van Buren AMP Commission uh, periodically has has put us on their billboards on Interstate 40, uh, approaching Van Buren from the east or or from Oklahoma or from the, in the west. Yeah. So we we draw some traffic that way, and then we've put brochures and and. Uh, rack cards out into the visitor centers all across the state uh, and promoted the site that way. So so I think the last time I talked to you, you said it was under construction at the moment. Yeah, well, under repair under is probably repair. The, be- okay. the better way to look at it. Of course, we've been shut down for COVID, oh, uh, COVID. like a lot of institutions yeah. have, and uh, we're, we don't have a lot of space there. You know, the tours are in a, in a, in a home, so your, your six-foot distancing requirements and then – when COVID first came out, they were worried about touching things, and yeah. and, and you know we weren't going to disinfect uh, antique furniture mm. on a daily basis and no. and uh, deteriorate those kinds of things. So, so uh, you know with the campus closed and, and the university going to virtual, uh, we've we've been shut down. But in the meantime, we had we've had some repairs that we needed to make, some uh, you know a few things maintenance maintenance wise that needed to be done, and uh, we're hoping to have all that finished up and and be ready to open probably the first week of March uh, of this year. So we'll so, be back in business and, and people can come out and see it. So about the time the high school kids and they, the, all the school kids go to spring break and your college kids are going to spring break, we'll open back up. And that pretty much starts a vacation season in this part of Arkansas. Yeah, and the, the other thing it opens up for us is uh, a lot of your field trips, a lot of your uh, elementary schools and, and, uh, and, and middle schools wait until – the better weather, you know, in the springtime to do their field trips, and plus their their uh, mandatory um, achievement testing is over, and they kind of reward the kids with some field trips. With field trips, like oh, we, yeah. we draw a lot of kids that way, and we do some hands-on stuff. We shoot the can. We we do uh, we do some demonstrations. We we talk to them about archaeology. Uh, we have a really good opportunity to do that at Dren Scott. So there's some there's some great resources that we can tap into. As it sits now, what are your future plans for the site? You know, uh, we are we are completing as we speak within a couple of weeks a second restoration, and and that's the Wilhoff House. So right down the street from us, adjacent to our property, just across the railroad tracks, close to downtown, um, uh, just a rock's throw from the uh, from the courthouse in, in Van Buren, is Leonard Wilhoff's home. Leonard Wilhoff bought the land from John Drennan built a house there, uh, and in the meantime, he was a baker. He was a German immigrant uh, who was a baker and ran a bakery on Main Street in Van Buren. But but it's in the old Main Street. It's on the riverfront, wooden, wooden Main Street yeah. next to the river that's gone today. That's at the site where the Simmons uh, chicken processing plant is down there. Um, Leonard was a Mexican War veteran. Uh, 
he was actually the flag bearer of the Arkansas, uh, the, the Van Buren Avengers, which was a company of troops uh, under the command of Archibald Yell. Uh, he was a uh, participant in the Battle of Buena Vista, where Yell was killed in, in action. Uh, he carried a flag that the ladies of Van Buren sewed for the company and presented to them on the courthouse lawn in Van Buren. And that flag today is in the old state house in Little Rock. Wow. We're, we're working on bringing it back and putting it on display. Now. Putting it on display. I don't have one artifact other than that flag that, that we know is connected to Leonard Wilhoff. Yeah. We have his house and we have his story and we know about the flag. Uh, he he was not a man of means like John Drennan. So, so his family didn't preserve his his effects for five generations. Yeah. But but it is an amazing story. And the other thing that I really like about it, and, and this was how I pitched this to Dr. Paul Barron when he was chancellor, who approved that project, was he said, why do you, why would we want a, a, a second house? I said, well, we have, we have John Drennan's estate on, yeah. on the hill. We have the rich man's house up there. This is a working man's house. Same time period, immigrant story, a lot of a lot of neat connections. And I told him about Archibald Yell and the, the Mexican War. I said, "This is this is a chance for us to tell both sides of the tracks." Yeah, and yeah. that's a that's an important the rich uh, man poor man yes. analogy of it. Yeah. yeah, so that's that's uh, that's where we're at now. That's that's probably the the main thing that's the future. Um, we're talking about uh, getting some funding. Uh, it's been uh, suggested or or uh, discussed that maybe uh, rebuilding the detached kitchen. At some point, would be a would be a project, and that would be fun because having a reproduction nineteenth century detached kitchen with a hearth. Uh, you're not in a historic building, so you don't have to worry about you know <laughs> using it because yes. it's not going to damage something that's historic. But but it would be functional, and we could we could do uh, some amazing living history programs with a with a full kitchen out there, and 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 that opens the door for some some interpretation of slavery. And, and that side of the story there, because we know slaves lived on the property, though we know that's a part of things too. And and um, honestly, that I'm really hoping to be able to do that someday because we we have an amazing African American story there in addition to the rich man who owned the house and and what we talk about John Drennan. So now we brought everybody up to speed on the latest and greatest with the Drennan Scott House. Now let's take a step back and talk about where it all started. Okay. How it came to be, you know, the story basically from the how it became to be here in Van Buren, or in Van Buren. All right. Um, we, you got four or five hours, right? Of course. <laughs> we, we won't take that long, but we could if we wanted to. Um, John Drennan was born in 1801 in Elizabeth, Pennsylvania. Elizabeth is about 30 miles or so. It's a suburb of Pittsburgh today, but it's probably 25, 30 miles from downtown Pittsburgh. Uh, up the Allegheny River, uh, from 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 in that area, if you're familiar with it, uh, he was. Uh, I think he had uh, two brothers and seven sisters, if I remember right. So he was right in the middle of all that, and there were a lot of uh, siblings ahead of him for inheritance. <laughs> so when he got of age, he cleared out. He cleared he, out. He headed west, to, and and he ended up in Tennessee, uh, in Nashville. Uh, he met a woman from Missouri. Uh, married her, uh, that's Emily, and Emily and John uh, got into uh, partnership with Emily's sister, Julia, and her husband, um, uh, who um, who was from uh, Delaware originally, but um, 
His name was David Thompson. And, uh, and Thompson and Drennan went into business together and ran a small mercantile store in Nashville, Tennessee. And I think, and it was blocked from the Tennessee State Capitol. And John Drennan ends up friends with Sam Houston somehow. So I don't know if Sam Houston was <laughs> buying, buying stuff from their store. And, and he may be. I mean, it's, it's funny how historical paths cross yes. in some of the most odd ways. Yeah. You know, you think, okay, it's, you know, it's like six degrees of separation yeah. in a way. If you know anything about Tennessee in the 1820s, you know, Tennessee was, Tennessee was pretty well settled. The land was pretty much bought up and being used, and people were leaving Tennessee and heading to Texas and heading west into other places. So you see this kind of immigration from Tennessee to other other places. And we we found a letter in in the Drennan Scott house here in Van Buren that that Emily had written but never sent. You know how you you know how you write a you write a birthday card <laughs> yeah, and you, you and tuck you it in the desk and forget it. to send it. Yeah. Well, that's what this was. This was a letter she had. So we pulled this letter out. Never had postage stamp on it. And it was to one of her cousins, and it says. It was it was written in Nashville, Tennessee, before they came to Arkansas. It says it says John has decided to go to Arkansas to seek his fortune. I guess we'll see how that works out. <laughs> and she never sent it. And she never sent it. Oh. So we know that he made a conscious decision to come to Arkansas. They they stop in Little Rock for a short period of time, and then they push up the river, and end up here in in the Van Buren area. Van Buren wasn't Van Buren yet. It was called Phillips Landing, and and Thomas Phillips was the guy who was who squatted on the land and got possession of the town site that became Van Buren. Drennan owned land in Chico County, down in the southeast corner of the state. And he he and Thompson put some cash up, $11,000, and Drennan put a little bit of his land up in Chico County, and they bought, they bought uh, um, Mr. Phillips out. Phillips moved to Chico, and Drennan and Thompson set up shop and took over in Van Buren. And immediately they take an ad out in the in Arkansas Democrat Arkansas Democrat Gazette. You can tell me where I'm from. It's the Arkansas Gazette at that Arkansas time. Gazette. And they take an ad out that says, we're going we're gonna to start a town here at Van Buren. Come join us. And we have lots for sale. They laid out the streets for downtown, pl- platted, the, platted the streets, and, and uh, started selling the property off. And, and they go from you know, buying a chunk of land to, to pretty much you know, establishing a city. The next year is 18, that's 1836 when that land deal works out. Uh, Drennan um, uh, Thompson dies in 1837. He he becomes ill. It's not really clear what what got him, but uh, but we know he passed away, and Julia shortly after him. So Drennan and his wife Emily become uh, the caretakers of the of the Thompson children, and that that goes on. They have children of their own. They have three daughters of their own at that time. Uh, in 1844, Emily dies. And Drennan is is uh, you know a father taking care of three daughters and and um, and his uh, his brother in law's children, and then he remarries uh, in eight, a couple of years later, uh, and that and um, uh, that's Catherine is is her name Catherine Humphreys, uh, and he has three sons with his second wife. So he had three daughters with his first wife <laughs> and three sons with his second wife. In the middle of all this, Drennan is uh, buying land. He is. He is appointed uh, to be trustee of the real estate bank. If you know Arkansas history very well, Arkansas had two early banking systems: the state bank, which was which was pretty much run by the governor and the state government, and the real estate bank, which was run by stockholders and planners and people with money and, and influence. Both banks failed miserably because they were loaning money out and people couldn't pay, and then they they both went bankrupt. Uh, Drennan gets hauled into court numerous times for some. Um, well, let's put it this way. 
he was buy, he he knew when when people were going to forfeit their lands because they couldn't pay their taxes, and he could buy land with that information for cents on the acre and turn around and sell it for dollars on the acre. So he was flipping it so illegally. He was flipping it, yeah. Flipping is not a you know uh, it's that's not a new concept. That's no, been, it's been done for many many years, <laughs> and so he was doing that. And sometimes he got drug into court over over those kinds of practices. But the real estate bank and the and the and the state banking they they put Arkansas they they caused Arkansas to go backwards in in terms of its financial uh, viability for many many years. We paid for that all the way up into the 1930s and 40s to the depression. Yeah. Um, but but anyway, Drennan was a, a landowner. He owned a thousand acres of, of cotton in um, in southeast Arkansas in Chico County. Uh, he was planning to build a home down there, but he but he died before he got that home built. Uh, he ran about a hundred slaves on that property because it was cotton. You know? Yeah, that is that is that is how that worked. Uh, had about twelve to fifteen, depending on the the year of the census and the the property. We we don't really see his property taxes in Crawford County because the courthouse burned and burned all that up. But we we can see from the census records how many slaves are living on the property in Van Buren. It's usually about between ten and fifteen. Those are domestic servants, people that are that are doing work there at the house. Um, so he has 100, uh, 125 slaves top, something like that. That puts him, he's a middle-of-the-road slave owner in Arkansas, if you, if you compared him to others. There were a lot, lot more who owned less slaves. There were quite a few who owned a whole lot more. He was not near a, a large operation. But, uh, but a big chunk of his money and fortune was tied up in, in slavery and, and the agriculture that came from that. And that's important to understand, too. Um, Drennan is going to uh, support uh, Zachary Taylor when Zachary Taylor runs for president. He's a Whig, and that's his politics, so he's anti-Andrew Jackson. Uh, the Whig platform was for uh, uh, national improvements. They were for building roads and, and getting the railroad established and, and uh, you know uh, building bridges over the rivers and getting away from the ferries and making life better for for commerce and for economic development. So, I mean, he would be a great member of a, of a Chamber of Commerce today if yeah. he, because he, he, he spoke their language back in the 19th century. Um, the, 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 the hard thing to rectify with that, though, is that he is a slave owner, and that's a part of his story. Um, we know that one, one of his slaves um, escaped on the Underground Railroad. And that's an amazing story. I want, I, want to, I want to tell you that story. Go ahead. Go ahead. That's, uh, in 1851, uh, Drennan took his, his uh, new wife, his second wife, and their firstborn son, who was a little baby, uh, on a trip back home to Pennsylvania to visit his family. And they, they didn't go all the way to Elizabeth. They stayed in Pittsburgh. They, you, you keep in mind, they rode steamboats. They rode down the Arkansas to the Mississippi, up the Mississippi to the Ohio, over to the, Tennis, or the Tennessee to the Ohio, and then rode a stagecoach uh, or something into into Pittsburgh, but it was mostly by river. <laughs> so it wasn't like there. going to the airport, jumping yeah. on a uh, nonstop yeah, to Pittsburgh. It, it probably took them a month to get there. Yeah, uh, and and it was a lot of steamboats that did it. So they get into Pittsburgh, and um, according to the newspaper, uh, Pittsburgh newspaper, which later the story later got reprinted in the North Star newspaper, which is Frederick Douglass's abolitionist newspaper. It was a story about John Drennan from Van Buren, Arkansas, who was sitting in the dining room of the hotel with his with his wife and his newborn son at the table, and members of the Underground Railroad broke into his hotel room, stole his slave girl who was there to help his wife with the baby, according to the newspaper article. Yeah, and and his luggage. 
the minute Mr. Drennan found out about this, he was quite upset. <laughs> and he says the article says he went to the hotel uh, manager who said, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't see any of this. I, I'm not involved. Maybe you ought to go talk to the police. And it's, uh, the newspaper article says that he went and talked to Officer Haig of the Pittsburgh Police Department. And Officer Haig gave Mr. Drennan some interesting information, according to the newspaper story. The Officer Haig said, sir, we can probably get your luggage back if, if you're if you're patient. Yeah. But you're never going to see that slave girl again. Yeah. And Drennan was mad about that, but he, he eventually got his luggage back. Well, But yeah. the slave girl made her way to Canada and, and freedom. Pittsburgh, historically, was a major stop on the Underground Railroad. A lot of, a lot of abolitionist activity there. It's well documented. And, and we, have a, we have a clearly documented slave escape of an Arkansas slave girl who ended up in Pittsburgh and got liberated by the by the Underground Railroad, and it's written up in the newspaper. Eventually, picked up by Frederick Douglass's newspaper. Yeah. That's what makes it even even more amazing. So, so uh, so that's one one story that we have that that's uh, that's really cool. The the other one, and you know, here we are in February, and it's it's Black History Month, so it's kind of good that we can we can uh, we can talk about these things, and, and it's, it's very relevant today. But even even. Better than that, I think it, that's a powerful story. Um, when I got the word that I was going to leave the Park Service and go to UA Fort Smith, uh, I sent an email out to all my friends and people I'd worked with. And I said, "I'm leaving the Park Service, and I'm, I'm going to be um, I'm going to be working for the state of Arkansas as a professor." And and I said, "Here's my new contact information. This this uh, this email address can go dark, and here's my new one with, yeah. with the university." So uh, a woman in Baltimore, Maryland, who I had done some research with and shared some information with over the years, good friend of mine, Angela Walton Raj, she emails me back and she goes, why, why are you leaving the Park Service? I said, well, they're going to make me a professor. And I said, and as a matter of fact, I said, we, we've got a historic house in Van Buren that we're going to try and get some grant money for and turn into a museum. So I may get to help, you know, get a museum established. She goes, she typed me back in an email. She goes, what, what house in Van Buren? I'm curious. That's so called the Drennan Scott House. Yeah. She wrote me back, and she made the font really, really large <laughs> on the computer screen where I could see it. And she wrote back, I'm a descendant of one of John Drennan's slaves. She, she knew her genealogy. She, a- Angela is a, is a top-notch, highly respected, on the, on the national level, African-American genealogist and, and Native American genealogist. She, she is an expert. Um, and she worked for the University of Maryland until she retired. I wrote back, when she said that, I wrote back, Cool. Which one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she said, his name is Patrick. And so she started immediately firing questions at me. Have you seen anything about Patrick? Have you seen anything about his slaves? I said, Angela, I said, we're just getting started. Yeah. I said, I know the house is full of stuff. I've seen letters and documents and papers that I haven't had time to even, you know, examine yet. So I said, as soon as I get a handle on what's here, I'll let you know. Well, we started researching the background of the house. We started pulling stuff out of boxes and drawers and underneath the bed and in the closet but, but it turned out that we found that, that Drennan's papers and personal papers and financial papers had been sold to the University of Texas in the 1940s by the family. That's during the Depression. Yeah. World War II is getting, about to get started, but also it's during the Depression. At that time, Drennan's great-granddaughter owned the house, and she was not married, and she did not have a very big income, and she was trying to keep things together. So she sold off some, a few things to, to, to pay her bills. Among them were Drennan's papers. The University of Texas wanted his papers because Sam Houston's signature was on some of them because Drennan, yes. and, Sing- Drennan and, and Houston were good friends and business partners. 
So that precipitated a, a trip to, to Texas. I've been to Austin three times now to look at that collection. <laughs> and uh, the the second time I went down there, um, I, I, I found a ledger book in the collection that I hadn't looked at yet. And when we pulled the ledger book out, it was a listing of all of Drennan's property in 1851 when he died. It's 10 years before the Civil War started. Yeah. The, the second page was a listing of all of his slaves by name, their original purchase prices, depreciated values for them in 1851 compared to their original purchase price, and then there was a column that gave their disposition as of 1865. It was updated. It was updated. After the war. Yeah. So it said it would say if, if he still owned this slave when the war, it would say this slave was freed by the War of 1861. Patrick's name was the second on the list. Wow. And it said that Patrick died in Van Buren in 1858, and is buried in Van Buren. I saw that. I saw that entry. Yeah. And I walked out to the hallway and took a big deep breath. And got, like, wow. and got my cell phone out and I called Angela. Yeah. I said, Angela, I found Patrick. I said, Did you know that he died in 1858? She said, No, I did not. I said, did you know that he's buried in Van Buren? She said, no, I did not. I told her stuff about her ancestor yeah. who was in slavery to, to John Drennan that she did not know. That's that's powerful stuff. Oh, yeah. And I can't show you in a podcast here. No, no. But I have a photograph because a couple of months later she came to visit. And I got to introduce Angela, who is a fifth-generation descendant of one of John Drennan's slaves, to... Caroline Bircher, who is a fifth-generation descendant of John Drennan. I introduced those two ladies to each other for the first time. For the first time. They are not, Angela is not a slave, and, and Caroline is not a slave owner. Yeah. But that's what they have in common in their heritage five generations back. You talk about a powerful moment. Oh, yeah. It, 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 I mean, it doesn't get much more deep just, than that. Just a history aspect of it and, yeah. and what you had to go through. You know, had to go to Austin two or three times to get yeah. the paperwork. You know, what are the chances that somebody completely out of state was a descendant of a slave that was here in Van Buren? Right. You know, that's one in a million chance. And we, I interact with Angela. Angela and I discuss history, obviously her connections to the property. She's she's involved in, in how we tell the stories and what we tell and, and, and all of that. So she's, she's a tremendous friend, a tremendous historical resource. I mean, it, it's just amazing. And then... Through Angela, we've met other descendants of, of Drennan slaves on the other level. And we've had them walk in the door, you know, down there when we were open for business. So that's yeah. that's really been been a, a powerful and rewarding thing also to be able to tell those stories. So I, I guess what I want to say, DJ, is that on, on one hand, this sounds like, oh, you've got this white plantation owner's house and you're telling his story and all the wonderful things. Because Drennan left a legacy in Van Buren that's still there today. He, he gave the money. He gave the land for the courthouse. The, the, the Union Pacific Railroad tracks that are running in Van Buren right as we speak were the Fort Smith and Little Rock Railroad tracks that John Drennan started. Okay? Yeah. So there's a legacy there, and he platted the streets of the town, and, and you have all that. But at the same time, we, we know he was a slave owner, and, and there's there's that side of the story too, and that needs to be told. And this preserving his property gives us a chance to to tell those stories, to learn that history, and, and understand that with with progress and with uh, ad- advancement of of you know our culture yeah people have been victimized people have have uh, have uh, have been hurt by that and and it's something that we need to recognize especially in light of where the where the nation is today well and and me and me and Cody's talked about this before after the Civil War you know they always talk about oh, it ended slavery but the slaves are worse off 
after the Civil War than they were. I mean, they had it rough during the Civil War and before it. But after the Civil War, it was even worse. Well, you have you have the white supremacist groups. The Klan gets started. You have um, short as soon as as soon as federal Reconstruction in the South is over and martial law is ended and the army leaves. There's no there's no protection. Yeah. And uh, and and then the other thing is uh, share the sharecropping system replaces slavery. Um, you know, I, I I don't know how I would would describe whether it's better or worse. I don't think I would. I don't think I can personally go there, but I would definitely say that that the institution of slavery was replaced by a different form of slavery, and that was the sharecropping system. It took it, it took advantage of of African Americans just as bad as slavery did in, in many ways, yeah. and probably and probably worse than some others, because they were given rights and freedoms by the constitutional amendments, but they were not those were not enforced, those were not granted, and they were they were definitely trampled on and and uh, and abused in the South. So. And that's important to understand, too. Yeah, you know, but would they go to, I mean, you know, you talk about how many people actually owned slaves in the city of Van Buren. Was, was Drennan one of the the main? I, again, I haven't put a number. I haven't. I, that's something that we need to quantify, uh, and it would be pr- pretty easy to do. Most of the slave owners historically in Crawford County might own one or two slaves. Okay. Okay. And, um, and 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 that's that's what you see out here in the western part of the state and the north, northwestern part of the state is uh, slave holdings usually tended to be less than ten, and and you're you're talking about domestic servants or maybe just a uh, help help on a small farm or something like that. The the plantation agriculture was on the delta, you know. So so from you know um, from Blytheville all the way down to Lake Village. All along that Mississippi River corridor, there, that's where your big plantations were, and there were there were plantations there with 300 and 400 slaves working there, those farms. So those were, you know, thousands and thousands of acres under under cultivation, and hundreds and hundreds of slaves working them. Drennan, Drennan has has that as part of his uh, his empire, so to speak, and and he's about 100 slaves and a thousand acres of cotton. But I can tell you this: I've seen the I've seen the receipts. He cotton was lucrative. I mean he. The other thing that's really interesting to me is he he deposited his money in a bank in Louisiana. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't even keep his money. Well, in, the, in you know, I, told, I told you the story. He was a, he was a trustee of a bank system in Arkansas, and it was kind of it was kind of shady. Yeah. So you can kind of see why he's putting his money in a bank in Louisiana. Yeah. But all of the certificates of deposit are are from a bank right across the line in Louisiana, and he was down in that corner anyway. It'd be it would be like somebody you know doing business in Roland or yeah. or Muldrow here, but uh, we don't think much about that. But uh, but it's kind of interesting that he was putting his money in a bank and deposited it in Louisiana. But he had to take his cotton to New Orleans to sell it anyway. So, so he had a, that. This is another part of the story. He he has a, a steamboat captain who is who is a business partner, friend, and lives in the house with his family. He's a bachelor. He lives in the Drennan house with the rest of John's family. Okay, it's listed on the census record. His name is Phil Pennywit. Pennywit is a steamboat captain, and he parks a steamboat at Van Buren. When Drennan wants to go to his farm at Lake Village, they float down the Arkansas on the steamboat and then turn right at the Mississippi and end yeah. up at Lake Village, where, where his plantation is. When it's time to get the cotton to New Orleans, they take the steamboat down there, fill the steamboat full of, of cotton, take it to New Orleans. He, he meets a guy named L.C. Greenwood in, uh, in, in New Orleans, who's his cotton broker, and Greenwood and Sons sell his cotton for him. When they get the cotton sold, they hand, they present Drennan with a big a big bag of cash I guess or a, yeah. big, a big box of cash, and Drennan would wander wander the wharf in New Orleans, and he would buy oysters, 
and pickles and bourbon and French wine and whatever was sitting on the dock. There, sugar, uh, women's uh, bolt, bolts of cloth to make dresses, men's hats and boots and uh, nails and window glass and you name it. And he would buy and fill it, fill that steamboat full of stuff. That's how I describe it to my students. <laughs> the old George Carlin. I have a place for your stuff. Yeah, yes. So he would fill that steamboat full of stuff that people would want up here in Arkansas, and he would bring it back. He had a store in Little Rock. And he would offload some of it there, stock that store, come up to Van Buren, l- l- offload some stuff at Van Buren, come around the corner here to Fort Smith. Had, Pennywit had a store in Fort Smith, so Pennywit got in on the action. Uh, Pennywit and Bostick, they had a store right down here on, on Garrison Avenue. Then from Fort Smith, the boat would go up to Weber's Falls. If they could get across the falls, it might make it to uh, Fort Gibson. If it couldn't get across the falls, they'd offload the wagons and then haul it to Drennan's store at Fort Gibson. Wow. And, uh, and every time that steamboat stopped, something got offloaded and something got, got loaded. Put on it. And it made money every time it stopped. It was like it was triangular trade. We talk about that in, in a U.S. history class with slavery and rum and sugar and, and, and how triangular trade worked in the ocean, in the, in the Atlantic. It was the same thing on the Arkansas River. Yeah. And Drennan was making money doing that. You take stuff down, you sell it, load it back up, and bring it back. I mean. I mentioned to you that he got in legal troubles. Yes. So he needed a lawyer. So guess who his lawyer was? Uh-oh. Now, now what have I told you? I told you he was a Whig. Yeah. I, I haven't told you yet, but he was a Mason. So who do you think his lawyer was? You any guesses? I'm drawing a blank here. How about Albert Pike? Of course. Albert Pike was his lawyer. Okay. So when you when you look at um, uh, look at the definitive biography on Albert Pike, which is published by University of Arkansas Press, uh, they relied on uh, a lot of P- uh, Pike's personal letters and correspondence and memoirs. There is a letter that's quoted in there that says that uh, Albert Pike says this about John, his friend John Drennan. He says, "I remember many wonderful times walking up the hill to John Drennan's house." And he said, I was always greeted at the front door by the congenial host who always presented me a silver tumbler, a mint julep cup, yeah. full of crushed ice with a sprig of mint sticking out of the top of it. So Drennan had ice year-round at his house. He, he cut ice out of the river and, and saved it. And saved it. And then uh, they drank mint juleps out of those cups. And those 12 cups are in the collection at Drennan's Scott today. So silver cups. And then there's a cool story about them, too. Drennan raced horses on the side when he was bored, I guess. So where would he race horses at? Uh, over here in Fort Smith. Over here. Yeah, there was a track, you know, where, uh, well, where North O uh, and Albert Pike meet. Okay. That's that's the location of Elias Rector's house. Elias Rector owned everything from North O to the river. Okay, that was his estate at one time. Elias Rector is an interesting character that we ought to talk about some other day. Uh, he's buried at Oak Cemetery here. Uh, but uh, on, on the Rector estate, he had a horse track. And Drennan would bring horses over here and race them. They took horses to Fort Gibson. There was a we, we found a letter where he uh, Drennan was talking smack to a uh, army officer, a captain at Fort Gibson, who who said he had the fastest horse in Indian territory. And uh, John Drennan said something to the effect of, "You know, your your horse your horse couldn't carry oats and water <laughs> from my horse over here." He said, "I got I got something that's faster than yours." And they were trying to get him to race and put yeah. some money up against it. But but anyway, back to the silver tumblers. Every time John Drennan won. 25 silver dollars racing his horses, uh, he made a silver tumbler, and there's 12 of them because it took 12 silver dollars melted down to make a to tumbler. Make a cup. 
wow. <laughs> and we have 12 cups in the collection. Albert Pike drank out of those cups, and he talks about them in his memoirs. Now, I'm not, again, Albert Pike's kind of a controversial guy, too. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I'm not here to glorify Albert Pike. Albert Pike has his, uh, has his issues in history. But, but in the context of, of Fort Smith and Van Buren and uh, Arkansas, you know, Pike is a is somebody that we need to understand, and uh, I'm not saying everything he did was was right or 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 praiseworthy. Um, he he ended up the Confederate uh, representative to the Indian Territory. He was not a very good military officer, uh, but he was also involved in the Mexican War and and uh, and then eventually the Civil War later. So. Uh, he, he's a guy that we need to probably understand a little bit better. Yeah, I think um, Albert Pike would be an entirely different podcast yeah, to sit down and, another story and, and spend some time talking about He was him. Drennan's lawyer, and then uh, then he served Drennan's daughter and son-in-law, the Scots, after Drennan passed away. So so he was very close to the family. We actually have a, we have a portrait of him in the house that he gave the family to remember him by when he moved out of Arkansas and headed up to the Washington D.C. area after the Civil War. After after the war, yeah. So so Drennan passed away in 1851. 1855. 55. 51. He was appointed uh, Choctaw agent and then promoted to. And so we haven't even talked about Trail of Tears yet. No. Um, in 1851, because of his loyalty to Zachary Taylor, he was one of the few uh, Arkansasiers who uh, who was given a position in the in the Taylor Whig government. And he was promoted. He was given the job of Choctaw agent. Uh, Indian agents were very important because they were the U.S. government's representative to that tribe. At the same time, he he was Choctaw agent. the The next level up was a superintendent of the Southern District, and that that position was vacant. So they made Drennan Choctaw agent and superintendent, and, super- and that gave him authority over the five tribes. Okay, which, which is pretty pretty cool too. And um, and and I, I'm just going to go ahead and mention this. During that time, from 1851 before his death in 1855, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Cherokee Nation that their original treaty, the Treaty of Nui Chota, that they had signed to give up lands in Georgia, North Carolina, Tennessee, uh, and move and emigrate to Indian Territory, which is where they are located today. The government had not paid them for 25 years for that treaty. And the Cherokees fought through the court system all the way from the lowest courts to the Supreme Court. And once the Supreme Court ruled that the Cherokees deserve to be paid and the federal government must pay them, they, they contracted the superintendent of the southern region to get the money coined in New Orleans and pay the Cherokees out. So and that, that was agent was John Drennan. John he goes down to New Orleans with his steamboat and Phil Pennywit. He <laughs> picks up $17 million in coins, brings it back to Van Buren, lays over here for a night, and then heads up the river to Fort Gibson. Where he gets in a knockdown, drag out <laughs> fight with Chief John Ross. John Ross wants his Cherokees, his people, to be paid at Tahlequah at the tribal headquarters. Well, Tahlequah's not really conveniently on the river right there. Yeah, it's no. Like, it's close to the Illinois, but it's not on the river. Uh, Drennan says, "No, so bringing this by steamboat, coming to uh, coming to Fort Gibson, bring your people down here, and we'll pay them." And and Ross is like mad, so Ross goes over Drennan's head. He's the chief of the Cherokee Nation. Goes over there, over his head. Goes to uh, his superiors in Washington D.C. Writes some letters. Hey, this guy's being unreasonable. He wants the people to walk, you know, walk all the way to Fort Gibson, get paid. He's got the money there. Um, you know, make him bring it to Tahlequah. And they're like, dude, he's the boss. Yeah. You know, we we appoint him. He makes that. It's his decision. Yeah. Drennan said, 
he needed the army to protect the seventeen million dollars, and there's probably some truth to that. Yeah, well, I mean, seventeen million dollars in Indian territory. But I'm, I, I've, I've read this, you know. I'm reading this exchange, and I'm like, you know, Drennan, why don't you cut them some slack, take the money to Tahlequah? And I'm like, Chief Ross, you know, just just walk down the road. You know, I'm, I'm in between this. Yeah, I'm like, it's, I don't really get it. Yeah. And then I figured something out. You know what I figured out? Guess who owned a store in Tahlequah? <laughs> mercantile store. Mercantile. Uh, Chief John Ross. Yeah. Guess who owned a mercantile store in Fort Gibson? I've already told you. Yeah. John Drennan. Yeah. So as soon as he pays the the, if, the nation. If you know every person was about to have 93 bucks in their pocket just handed to them. Yeah. Would you like to have a store right down oh, the street? Yeah. I would too. So, so you know, so again, it's all about the money. Well, could it be about the, the money or the security? Because it had to go up to Illinois. So the security aspect of it too, because I, he made it, he made it all the way up here. Was seventeen million? Yeah, you know, I, I just, I guess, I'm just too much of a pessimist after seeing all, all the history I've seen and studied. I just can't it's, really go there. I, I mean, yes, okay, yeah, he does have a store there. I'll agree with you. And you're fixing to hand out money. Okay, that makes sense too. Looking at it at the security aspect of it, if he got any deeper into Indian territory, there's no telling what would have happened yeah. to it, or I, what other tribe would have got a hold of it. Things get justified for certain reasons, yeah. but but they have certain effects when the, when they. <laughs> When the deal gets done, I guess that's where I'm at on it. But anyway, that's that's part of the story when he was Indian agent. But I want to back up because Drennan, before he could pay all those Cherokee, all the Cherokee Nation out for that treaty, he had to do a census to see who was still alive 25 years after the treaty, whose names were on the treaty. Does that make sense? Yes. So he had to he had to figure out who who was eligible for the payment. That's called the Drennan Roll today, and in in Cherokee family history and in their citizenry and tribal history, the Drennan Roll is a very important document because it was done 25 years after the treaty and it, it documented the people who had signed the treaty and who were still alive. So um, so today, if, if, if you are a person who find out who you, and you find out you have Cherokee ancestry but you can't prove it, if your family name or you have ancestors that you can trace to that are on the Drennan Roll, you get tribal benefits immediately. They don't even. They, they it's like no dispute. You know, they no they go, questions it's, asked. It's, it's, it's done deal in black and white because that's very clear. Yeah. So it's a it's a valuable record. I mean, you know, it's part of the the tragedy and the insult and the and the the horrible, you know, Holocaust level of 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 uh, of uh, the situation that the that the Trail of Tears was for the Cherokee. But it's still a it's still a positive thing in the midst of all that, that they have that record. And, yeah. and it was John Drennan who was the one who, who ended up the government appointee to get that done. And then we have, we have that story too. So, and, so I guess, uh, I guess that's kind of the, the gist of, of our historical uh, importance at Drennan Scott. We have African-American history. We have Native American history. And then um, I like to mention that Drennan's father fought in the American Revolution. Drennan was in the militia in the State Guard during the Mexican War. Drennan has a stepson. His his first wife was a widow when he married her, and she had a son from a previous marriage, and he was a Confederate officer during the Civil War. So we have Civil War represented. Um, Drennan has two uh, great grandsons who are officers in World War One in the infantry. Uh, he has a son-in-law down the line who was a combat veteran, landed at D-Day, and fought his way all the way across Europe to the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, in the European theater in World War II, won five bronze stars in the process. Uh, he has another son-in-law down the line who was a combat veteran in Vietnam, and he has a 
fifth-generation grandson who served in the Air Force and another fifth-generation grandson who served in the U.S. Army in peacetime and during the Cold War. So, so there's a military legacy from the Cold War all the way back to the American Revolution in that family documented as well. Yeah, and, and that's that, such a cool thing. You know, that's just another, t- you know, another, I guess you say notch or, or interesting fact about... Another the, thing that we can connect visitors to you know yeah. are you a veteran do you do you, are, are you, do you have veterans in your family yeah. you know here let me tell you some stories about these veterans um there's a women's history story there that's pretty amazing john drennan's uh john drennan had three daughters one of them uh survived him and ended up inheriting the, the place she gave it uh she she gave it to her son who had a daughter and then um, that great-granddaughter of John Drennan ended up with the property for a significant period of time. Her name was is Caroline Scott. Caroline worked for the Boston store over here in Fort Smith, and she, she would ride the uh, trolley, trolley from, the, uh, from the bridge uh, at, at, uh, at the end of Midland Avenue there all the way past Electric Park and then all the way to downtown, and she worked over here at the Boston store until the Boston store built a store in Van Buren, and then she worked at the Van Buren store. Wow. But, uh, so she's connected to the Nye family over here in the Boston store, and that, that, <laughs> that's a neat story too. And she also owned the property during the Depression. So, so um, she's very interesting because she was very wealthy in her childhood, but by the time the Depression hit and the time, by the time she inherited the property, they had lost almost all their 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 wealth, yeah. and they were just a middle class family with a big house and a and a uh, well respected family name in in the area. Yeah, due to due to the money. So um, so it's kind of a ra- riches to rag story in some ways, and the family never recovered from the uh, they never recovered their wealth from the Great Depression. So Caroline Scott is a cool story too, and with Boston Store connections and all that. I, wor- I worked at the Bo- reason I reason that's important to me is I worked at the Boston Store when I was in high school and. And when I was going to West Ark, so, so, uh, so you kind of have a connection. I have a connection. In a way. That's a personal connection for yeah. me. I, I started seeing, I started seeing Boston Store labels, and I found her name tag, and I was like, oh my gosh, I still have my name tag, you know. Yeah. And uh, I actually gave it to the museum here, so they they have it in the collection here. But uh, you know, that's a that's a very important uh, story in Fort Smith's history is the is the history of the Boston Store and the influence it had. So, so she had the house. Mm-hmm. She passes away. Hands it down. She, she to, gives it to her niece. She didn't. She was a, you know, she was a spinster aunt. Okay. We, we talk about we talk about that that phrasing. I I, I mean I, I use I only use that derogatory. I just use it as uh, in, in the historical context. But she was she was an aunt who never married, never had children of her own. When she died in 1976, she died the bicentennial year. She gave the house to her niece, her brother's daughter. Uh, that niece lived until 2004. So we're back to where we're we started. Right back, yeah. We're back to where I started at Drennan Scott in 2004. When that niece passed away in the summer of 04, I met with that niece's three children who were all, they weren't children anymore. They were middle-aged, yeah. and we negotiated the, the, uh, the sale of the house through grant funding, and then, uh, then we started the restoration project, which we completed in 2010 and opened to the public in 2011. Have they been back to see it? Oh, since? yeah. The, uh, one of them, the Caroline Bircher, who I mentioned I introduced to, uh, to Angela, uh, she's, a, she's our Master Gardener's Coordinator in the Victorian Garden, so she's up there uh, sometimes twice a week. Uh, her and her brother Scott give, give tours of the house on, on one day a week for me. Yeah. I've got paperwork, and I've got students, and I've got you know, yeah. responsibilities. So I, I give tours when I can, and I've got some docents that volunteer and, 
and uh, we've got family members up there periodically too. They they have a brother uh, who lives in Little Rock, and he's kind of he's too far away to to participate. But uh, but the two that are local here, uh, two family members, they they help us, and they're they're in our friends group, and they're they're uh, they're still they're still tied to the history. Yes, and, and that's they appreciate the fact that we tell their family. Story. Yeah, and that's something that you really don't see nowadays. You, yeah. you know, people have you know they've moved off and they didn't get it, or they just let the history go to pot. But if you've still got active, connected ties to the actual site, yeah. that just makes – and if you can schedule a day to be there when you could take a tour with these individuals, it's even better. It makes a great – makes a big difference. So how would our audience be able to find out more information about the Drennan Scott House? We have a – Drennan Scott is on Facebook. So there's a Facebook page for the Drennan Scott site. Um, we haven't been posting a whole lot there because of COVID, and we've been closed. But uh, but you can anticipate uh, starting in March, you know, when we get back open for business, uh, there'll be regular posts there. It'll, it'll be a good place to see our calendar of events. When we we have special events, we have a we usually do a, a big uh, production at uh, around Christmas time and the holidays. We we dress up the house and have a big open house uh, program and serve eggnog and and uh, and have and have, have living uh, living history program. living history yeah uh, other times of the year we've done Veterans Day programs we've done Memorial Day programs we've done Fourth of July programs so I would anticipate some some uh, outdoor programs and things like that uh, Wilhoff is going to be open also so we'll have a second property that we'll be interpreting and and talking about that's going to get quite a bit of uh, attention I'm sure uh, at the end of end of this month and into next month. Uh, John Drennan is on Twitter. John Drennan tweets periodically, so, so John, you can find <laughs> so John Drennan on social media. Yeah, John Drennan has social media, and he would have been uh, into that. So you'll see, you can you can find us there. And then the university has uh, has a, we have a web page through UA Fort Smith too. To, I'm not. They've been in the process of, of updating it, so I need to. I, I, now that you've asked, I need to check, need to check out and see it. what that looks like because I haven't in a while, and I know we've we've gone through some changes on our websites. But um, but those are the, the the Facebook page is probably the best way. Uh, they can also call, um, uh, let's see, 788-7805 uh, is, uh, is my office number. Okay. And they get information there. Uh, they can email email me at tom.wing at uafs.edu, or they can email the Drennan House, which uh, also comes comes to my to, comes through the email to me, and that is uh, Drennan Scott, Drennan-Scott at uafs.edu. And uh, if they need information, have there been any books written about Mr. Drennan himself? Not, uh, not Drennan by himself. The uh, the one book that 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 kind of addresses the property uh, as a whole and the family is uh, a pictorial history book that I did through Arcadia Press uh, called "Images of America: Van Buren," and it's a it's a photographic history of Van Buren. But there's a whole chapter in there that includes the John Drennan as John Drennan and David Thompson as founders of the city, um, you know, they 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 garner some attention there. So we have portraits and and kind of cover the whole the whole family, the five generations. And there's pictures of some of the historic photos of the house over time, some of the photos we used in the restoration and and uh, different things going on there. So that's really it. the The book is in process right now. Okay. I guess would be the way to describe that. About. 35,000 words into it right now. Okay. About 1842. <laughs> Last time I sat down and uh, uh, put a pen to it. But yeah. uh, that, that's eventually something I need to get need to get written. So during your time at the, at the house, what is some of the very unique 
artifacts that you've come across that stand out in your mind like this is why I do what I do? Oh my goodness. Um, when when we were working on the site, um, well, immediately when we took the site over, uh, the engineers. So let me back up. We had a, we turned a public uh, we turned a home a private home, which was for people for a family to live in. We turned that into a public building, and when you do that, you have to meet all kinds of different uh, load requirements. I mean, that, that house had to be engineered to handle you know forty or fifty people in each room. You know, all day long as tour groups come and go. That's a lot of wear and tear. That, you know, that's yeah. that structure. So we had to go under the house and and reinforce it. When, when the when the engineers went underneath the house, the whole crawl space was was totally. This is good Arkansas language. Cram full <laughs> of of bottles. Of the family had pitched glass bottles underneath the house for five generations. <laughs> so so you had so we got the house in two thousand four. There were. 1980s Coke bottles and Pepsi bottles. Yeah. And underneath those were 1950s and 60s mason jars and, and bottles. And then underneath those were 1920s and early 1900s bottles. And and then we got into the 18, 1890s and 1880s, and we started finding that the family had a taste for uh, German mineral water that was imported. We had all these glass German Mineral water bottles that was brought up. They were from drinking bottled water. Yeah, from New Orleans, I would imagine. But they were, but but that in the eighteen nineties, eighteen nineties, the family was probably at the height of its wealth. So they had the money to buy imported water from Germany yeah. and ship it over here. Um, before that, we go all the way back to the eighteen found an eighteen twenties black glass beer bottle underneath that house. That was a cool. Full, was it fully intact or was it? Yeah, it's fully intact. I mean, it didn't have the stopper on it, but it's, no, but it, it's a black glass beer bottle from the eighteen wow. twenties. That was that, that was a cool moment. Okay. <laughs> So we excavated the front. There was a sidewalk, a concrete sidewalk that we took off in front of the house. We knew it wasn't historic. We got under, underneath it, and there was a brick sidewalk underneath the concrete that had been capped over. Yeah. We, we carefully, we wanted to restore that. It was in pretty bad shape, and it needed some work. So we took those bricks out very slowly, and underneath the bricks was a layer of sand. And in the middle of that sand was an 1841 half dime, a five-cent piece. Wow, laying right there, and it was pristine too. It's in the it's in the exhibit case over there. That was a cool moment. Okay? Yeah, and I think the probably the next coolest moment was we had we located where the kitchen was in the backyard. Tim Mulvihill is a station archaeologist at UA Fort Smith from the Arkansas Archaeological Survey, and he he's the one who was in charge of all the excavation done there. So he he uh, texts me. I was on campus. He texts me and goes, "I think you better get over here." <laughs> I said, I said, are you digging? He goes, yeah. I go, I go, okay. I go. What? He goes, well, we found a button, and he goes, I want you to tell me it's a military button. And he said, I want you to uh, help me with it. I said, can you can you do that? And I said, yeah. I said, as a matter of fact, I got a book right here on my yeah. shelf of military military buttons. I said, I'll bring it. So so I come straight over the drain house from from, from campus, <laughs> straight out of a movie. And, get here and, now. And Tim's standing there, and he's got this. He's got it up in the sky, looking at it, trying to get a feel for it. He's got it all cleaned off, and he hands it to me. I flipped a few pages in the book and went down. It was it was a sack coat button from the Civil War, a Union Federal sack coat, their their basic blouse coat button, right next to the kitchen. Okay, I said he goes, "How do you think that got there?" I said, "Well, I said I bet the Union soldiers were liberating some oppressed uh, ham and and yeah. uh, and sausage and bacon from this uh, smokehouse and kitchen right here during the war." So speaking of the war, what happened to the house during the Civil War? It's, it sat right there. 
It sat right there. I did. Um, that's an interesting story in itself, too. Probably, probably the topic of another podcast. But, but what we know is, Drennan had died and was gone. His yeah. son, son-in-law, and daughter owned the property during the war. Um, they left Van Buren, boarded the house up, hauled their furniture, and moved to Little Rock because Little Rock stayed behind Confederate lines longer. I've got references to Charles Scott, his son-in-law, giving horses to the Pulaski Battery. Okay. When they came through on the way to Wilson's Creek, and also uh, to um, he 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 supported the Confederate. He didn't fight, but he supported the the Confederate government monetarily. When when Prairie Grove went off, the family left and went to Little Rock because they wanted to get further away from the action. Yeah. The steamboat captain, though Phil Pennywood, he was sitting on the house here in Van Buren, and and we found his wallet with passes. After the Union Army occupies Arkansas, he had passes to go up and down the Arkansas River between Fort Smith and Little Rock. And and that's kind of interesting Ooh. because he was working for some prominent Confederate family. He was from Connecticut originally. Yeah. Like, you know, it's it's interesting to know all the all the details of people's politics. Um, for whatever reason, the house didn't get burned. I've dug as far as I could dig on the official records uh, in most of the counts. I have found where federal troops guarded or used houses for headquarters or used houses to house officers. And I've read diaries and journals and, and picked up on locations that were used. Rector's house was used over here in Fort Smith. Yeah. Henry Strong guarded Rector house. <laughs> he talks about it. But I have not found any references to the Drennan house during the war. But but we know it survived. It sat there. Yeah, it sat there just empty. And, and we know Pennywhy. And, and it's kind of surprising that Drennan was a slave owner to the extent that he was. His son-in-law was a Confederate supporter to the extent that he was, and the house didn't get burned or, or whatever because a lot of those houses in that kind of situation usually were casualties of the war also. Yeah. I'm, I'm, Drennan did have a ferry on the on the river there between Van Buren and Fort Smith, and the Federal Army, when they raided Van Buren in 1862 after Prairie Grove, they did sink the ferry, though. They did burn his ferry boat and sink it in the river. And sink it, but they left the house intact. And, he, and Charles Scott had leased it to a guy named England, and we found a letter in Drennan's Drennan and Scott's papers, and uh, Mr. England wrote Charles Scott, who was in Little Rock. And England's here in Van Buren. Federal armies come through, burned a ferry, and sunk it. Uh, Charles Scott's in Little Rock. Dear Mr. Scott, I have the I have the uh, uh, sad news for you that your ferry that the Yankees burned your ferry and sunk it in the Arkansas River. And I don't recommend you buying another one anytime soon because <laughs> they'd probably do it again. They'll do it that's, again. That's what the letter said. Yeah. So, Scott tried to get Albert Pike to petition the federal government for damages after the war and get him to pay for that ferry. And they said, "You were living in Little Rock, dude. You were uh, yeah. You were you were pro Confederate. We're not giving you a dime. We're for not giving you anything. That was that's that's what the war cost cost you right there. Wow. It's amazing. It's an amazing place. We can talk about, like I said, we can talk about Native American history. We can talk about African American history. We can talk about women's history. We can talk about American military history. We can talk about the Great Depression. We can talk about what do you want to talk about? Yeah, we can connect the Drennan Scott yeah, family. I mean, to that it. is that is a really important piece of Van Buren Crawford yeah. County history that, unless you know about it, you don't know about. Yeah, it. Yeah, and let, let's let's kind of finish with this. It is it is a nationally significant National Register property. So what that means is, if you know anything about the National Register of Historic Places, there are, there are different levels of criteria, and a place could be historically important to a city. Or the place could be significantly important to the county, or the place could be significantly important to the state, or the state or the site could be important to the whole nation. Yeah, Does that makes sense. Drennan Scott is a site because of all of that history we've talked about here. 
that, that makes it nationally significant. There's a national story that can be told to that property, and that's that's a special thing. That's It's amazing, and who would have ever thought in Van Buren, Arkansas? <laughs> well, that's going to do it for today here on the podcast. I want to thank Tom for coming in. My pleasure. And, and, and just giving us a little bit of taste of the history of Van Buren, the, the Dren Scott House, and the history that goes along with it. You know, end of March, beginning of April, you'll be yeah. able to start taking tours again. Should be about the first weekend in March. Yeah. If everything proceeds on schedule. So if you haven't been up there, take some time, take a day, go up there, take a tour of the house. You will not regret it. But once again, thank you, Tom, for coming out today. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, DJ. I look forward to our future conversations, and uh, we'll see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by the Fort Smith Museum of History, located at 320 Rogers Avenue in Fort Smith, Arkansas. The museum is devoted to preserving the history of Fort Smith and the surrounding area and is open Tuesday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., or you can visit them online at www.fortsmithmuseum.org. For museum and ticket information, please call 479-783-7841.